following is a teaching message from Shaw Community Church. For more information on Shaw, for our teaching resources, visit www.shaw.org.nz. you don't know me, my name's Grant. I'm, I'm one of the worship leaders here. I'm married to Joy in the back there. Probably dying with embarrassment that I've mentioned her name. Um, and we've got two beautiful kids, Paul and Rosie, probably in Bounce and Sprouts at the moment. Been at Shaw for about, um, I don't know, how many, 10 years now? Maybe more? Loose track. If you've got a Bible, turn with me. We're going to be um, in the book of Amos. You've got a Bible to me. Book of Amos, chapter 2. We're going to read from uh, verses 4 right through to verse 16. This is what the Lord says For three sins of Judah, even for four, I will not turn back my wrath, because they have rejected the law of the Lord and have not kept his decrees, because they have been led astray by false gods, the gods their ancestors followed. I will send fire on Judah that will consume the fortresses of Jerusalem. This is what the Lord says. For three sins of Israel, even for four, I will not turn back my wrath. They sell the innocent for silver, the needy for a pair of sandals. They trample on the heads of the poor as on the dust of the ground and deny justice to the oppressed. Father and son use the same girl and so profane my holy name. They lie down beside every altar on garments taken in pledge. In the house of their God, they drink wine taken as fines. Yet I destroyed the Amorites before them, and though they were tall as the cedars and strong as the oaks, I destroyed the fruit above and their roots below. I brought you up out of Egypt and led you for 40 years in the wilderness to give you the land of the Amorites. I also raised up prophets from among your children and Nazarites from among your youths. Is this not true, people of Israel? But you made the Nazarites drink wine and commanded the prophets not to prophesy. Now then I will crush you as a cart crushes when loaded with grain. The swift will not escape, the strong will not muster their strength, and the warrior will not save his life. The archer will not stand his ground, the fleet-footed soldier will not get away, and the horseman will not save his life. Even the bravest warriors will flee naked on that day. What a wonderful, encouraging, and uplifting passage this morning we have. Uh, when I was younger, I really enjoyed going to buffet restaurants. And, um, you know, the one you, you really enjoy as a kid is the Pizza Hut buffet. So there's not many of those around anymore. And you know what they've got? They've got that station in the middle. It has like kind of nine or ten different pizzas in it. And, uh, and the best part is that kind of serve-yourself ice cream machine. You just pull the lever and ice cream comes out the bottom. You've got a Sunday bar as well. Um, it's the one you really love as a kid. I want you to imagine from with me today that someone has reopened a Pizza Hut buffet, the only one in Auckland. And as you walk in, in the station in the middle, there are nine different pizzas. There's one. It's the worst pizza you could ever imagine in your life. It's banana and anchovy. Right? I happen to think sticking uh, spaghetti on pizza is a pretty good idea. Thank you, Bill English. Um, and when you get to the, the, the serve-yourself ice cream machine, it says out of order. And there's a bowl of jelly beans in its place, and it says limit five per customer. Now, if, you, if that was me, I think that was the worst buffet in the world. But I tell you what, if you've experienced that, you've experienced a summary of the book of Amos, because that's exactly what Amos is. It's the worst buffet you've ever had in your life. 
It is nothing but nine chapters of doom, gloom, and judgment. It is nine chapters of a banana and anchovy pizza stuffed in one slice after another. And you can't get away from it. And then at the end, there are five little jelly bean verses of hope. That's it. It's an incredibly strange book. I've been a Christian, I don't know, 30 years or something now. And um, I can honestly tell you, I've never heard a sermon preached on the book of Amos. So the good news for me today is that none of you have either, I bet you. All right, so if I really tank it today, you've got nothing to compare it to. All right, what we're going to do today is we're going to take this passage, we're going to look at it um, in its historical context in Amos' day. How would that have been heard? And then we're going to fast forward to the New Testament and look at it through the lens of the big story of Scripture and see what that means. What, if anything, a, th- a book written 3,000 years ago might have to say to us today? So, Book of Amos, written about 750 BC, nearly 3,000 years ago. Um, a little bit before Daniel's time, a little bit before Israel went into exile, and, and a time of, of relative peace and prosperity for the nation. Things were good economically. Uh, there were no major powers in the region, lots of little kingdoms all keeping each other in check because they were all about as powerful as each other. And um, Israel looked at this time as, as God's divine favor resting on them. We must be on the right track. God must be blessing us. Things are going really well for us. We're, we're rich. We're powerful. We're, we're, we're doing well. Uh, Amos will tell them of the reality, but it was more of a historical accident, that piece. Because not long after Amos wrote, Assyria rose as a major power and dominated in the region for another hundred years. And uh, Israel were most certainly not under God's blessing in this, in this story, um, and they were outdoing their pagan neighbors in sinful behavior. Uh, Amos the man, he was, uh, he was from Judah in the south, uh, preaching to Israel in the north, at a time when uh, Israel were really two different kingdoms. And it's, it's significant, I think, that Amos was a shepherd as well, because the people in Israel who were supposed to shepherd the nation had stopped speaking, and had stopped being good shepherds. So God raised him up to speak. So looking at the book, the book of Amos opens with this description of God as a lion. He's roaring, and he's roaring at judgment at six different nations that surround Israel. He's roaring from Jerusalem. And there's these six oracles that precede the passage we talk about here. And they all follow the exact same pattern. For three sins, even four of this place. I will not turn back my wrath. And they go through one after the other. And these nations around Israel have done some really terrible things. They have brutalized people. They have sold whole people groups into slavery, destroyed people, just so that they can increase their borders. And if you were an Israelite hearing that, one after the other, One judgment on another nation, another one, another one. You would have rejoiced. You would have gone, this is great. Finally, all of these nations are going to get what's coming to them. They're going to get the judgment they deserve. And guess what? God's going to destroy them and give us their land, and we're going to be more powerful. And you probably think that right up until you heard the seventh and then the eighth judgment. Because then it's clear God isn't roaring out at the other nations. He's roaring back in at Israel and Judah. Now, Amos is presenting us with two different pictures of what's happening in Israel and Judah, but by and large, the same thing that's happening in Judah is happening in Israel. He fleshes it out a little bit more for what's happening in Israel, but it's safe to assume what's happening in one is happening in the other. 
both nations are actually guilty of the same core sin. They've both forsaken the law, they've chased after other gods, and they've forsaken Yahweh. And Amos is clear that when he catalogues the list of sins that they've done, all the behaviors that, that have worked out there, it is because of their forsaking of the law. It is because of their idolatry. It's because that they worshipped other gods. That's why they are behaving like they are. It's because of the idolatry in Israel that the rich were oppressing the poor. Those of means were perverting the course of justice. They could win a lawsuit through bribery and corruption. Innocent people couldn't afford to get justice because they couldn't buy it from people. Poor people had become commodities to be bought and sold like clothing. People worth no more than the price of a pair of Havianas. Man, that's a pretty cheap person. And then in verse 8, it's like this high point summary of the sin. It's one of those things that I guess Amos was saying this and going, I can't believe what I just said. You've got fathers indoctrinating their sons into idolatry, indoctrinating them into sexual immorality, indoctrinating them in how to enslave poor people economically, and that's all in just one sentence. They were worshipping other gods, not the one true God of Israel, one true God of the world. Part of that worship involved using the services of a temple prostitute, but you didn't think you'd hear that this morning. Um, and in, in, instead of fathers teaching their sons to be faithful to their wives, they were using the same prostitute. It's like uh, that thing Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 5, he says, this kind of immorality isn't even tolerated amongst the pagans, yet it's here amongst you guys. And then they, there's this phrase that says, they were lying down on garments taken in pledge. Now what that means is they've lent money to someone who's really poor. And the only thing that that person can give is security that they will pay the loan back is the cloak on their back. Now, you don't lend to rich people this way. Rich people can give you property or vehicles or houses or horses and all that. When you lend to people this way, it's not to help them get out of poverty. It's to keep them in it. If they can't keep themselves warm at night, they're going to get sick. They're not going to be able to work. They're going to have to sell themselves into slavery to you to pay the loan back. It's a, it's, it's a form of economic slavery. And then, worst of all, they've stolen the wine. Oh, those monsters, eh? They have stolen the wine, and they've done it through um, some spurious fines and penalties Amos talks about. Now, we're not told what those fines or penalties are, but it's pretty clear that from the context, it's, it's the powerful rigging the system so that it will work in their favor, so that they can benefit from someone else's labors and just profit from that, not having to work. This kind, of, um, this kind of behavior, I, I read it and I thought, man, you know what? You know who this would really fit with? Jerry Springer. This is the kind of thing you'd see people get up on Jerry Springer's show and just do some abhorrent things. I mean, but I, I thought about it and thought, like, this is the kind of stuff that would actually make Jerry Springer blush. I doubt he, they would have him on, he'd be on their show. And Amos is clear, look, this is not some kind of, oops, we made a mistake. Sorry, my bad, didn't know that was wrong. Uh, verse 9 to 12. You know, Israel knew the story. They knew what God had done for them, how he led them out of Egypt. God raised up prophets and Nazarites from amongst their youths. Those are people you could call a covenant enforcer, people there to bring Israel back to the law, to bring them back to faithfulness to God, to remind them of what God was saying. Yet they said to the Nazarites, no, don't, don't fulfill your vows to God. 
be like us, just drink wine, when they were expressly commanded not to. They said to the prophets, we don't want to hear what God's got to say. Just stop speaking. In other words, they, they willfully suppressed the word of the Lord. They knew what they were doing was wrong. They just didn't want anyone to remind them of it. They just wanted to go their own way. So Amos says in verse 13 to 16, well, great. You want to be just like the nations around you, right? You want to be so much like them? Well, I will make you so much like those nations, says the Lord. You're going to get exactly the same judgment that's coming to them. If that's what you want, that's what you're going to get. There's, a, there's an Aussie theologian, uh, Rick, Rick Watts. He's a bit of a crazy fellow, but he sums up the, uh, the book of Amos like this. He says, this is God speaking to Israel saying, Don't tell me you love me when the only thing made in my image you sell for a pair of sandals. It's a pretty good summary of the book. Amos is clear that the, the sins he's describing, they're the kind of stuff that happens when you stop worshipping the God who makes human beings in his image. Because what you do to other people is a reflection of what you think about God. See, what you do to other people, it's a reflection of ultimately what you think about God. That's why God took their actions so seriously. You know, God designed human relationships to be a, a perfect mirror of the love between Father, Son, and Spirit. Is it any wonder that Jesus could say to his disciples then, whatever you do for the least of these, you do for me? Now, there's this unspoken assumption in what Amos is, is, is laying down in this judgment here from God, and it's that Israel actually had a job, a role to play in, in God's purposes. They were God's people in the world for the benefit of the world. They were called to be a light to the nations, the ones who would show the world what it meant to be truly human, to live in relationship with God and to embody God's will on the earth. Yet, here they were, outdoing their pagan neighbors in, in immorality, in injustice, in oppression, and worst of all, to their own people. And believe it or not, this actually is a problem for God. This is a problem for God as well as it is for Israel. Because a long time ago, a long time before Amos, God made a covenant with Abraham and promised that through his family, all the nations of the world would be blessed. And Israel was Abraham's family that Abraham would have descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky. And God did that because his covenant with Abraham and his choice of Israel as his people, that was God's way of dealing with the sin of the world. That's God's way of putting the world to rights through his people. The problem God has now is how can God put the world to rights? How can God deal with the sin of the world when Israel cannot remain faithful to him? When Israel cannot even keep the covenant, how can God deal with the sin of the world when Israel themselves are so deeply sinful? And I wish I could tell you the book of Amos has an answer for that. Um, Amos just never answers that question. There are five verses of hope at the end which are a little bit vague, and they start to speak of these promises. But it's only when you get to the New Testament that we start to see the answer to that question. Because we know that it is Jesus who then took up and fulfilled what Israel was supposed to do. Just about every one of Jesus' actions were a symbolic reenactment of uh, Israel's story with himself 
at the center. Uh, Israel had 12 tribes. Jesus chose 12 disciples, showing that around him, a new Israel was forming, and he was the center, not an ethnic identity. Uh, Israel wandered in, in the desert for 40 years, led by God. Jesus was led by the Spirit into the desert to wander for 40 days. Israel failed by worshiping the golden calf. Jesus rebuked Satan from, his, from Israel's own law when Satan said, I will give you all these kingdoms if you just bow down and worship me. There's a, um, there's a story in Luke 21 uh, of a widow who gives two copper coins into the temple treasury. And uh, Jesus said she gave uh, more than all of you guys. She gave out of her poverty rather than you guys giving out of your wealth. And we tend to read that story as a, a story about sacrificial giving and, and a lesson for the kind of person Jesus approves of. And I'm sure there's, there's some of that element in there as well. But it's very strange that the next words out of Jesus' lips are a word of judgment against the temple, that not one stone will be left on top of another. And just maybe what Jesus was really saying was that this isn't a woman that you should be celebrating. This is a lament for yourselves, Israel. This is a lament for the nation. Because that no one said to her, let me take you in. You're so poor. Don't give your money away here. Let's look after you. Let's take care of you. Let's look after your needs. She's a poor widow with nothing, and she's given her last two coins away. That you're more interested in filling the temple treasury than looking after something made in my image. That just shows, Israel, you failed to be the people of God. And that's why Jesus says that we're coming under the judgment of God. In a society that treated women as sexual objects and property, we see Jesus treating a Samaritan woman who'd been used by men with dignity and respect as a full human being. And through that encounter, opened up a chance to speak the life of the gospel into her life. And she then became the first evangelist to the Samaritan community in Scripture. And then just think about how Israel denied justice to, to, the, to the poor and to the innocent and, and perverted the course of justice through bribery and corruption in Amos' day. Doesn't that look just like what happened to Jesus when he was dragged before Pilate? By manipulating the power that they had, the Pharisees and chief priests got Jesus, an innocent man crucified and sent to his death, and a known criminal released. Now, if that isn't perverting the course of justice, I don't really know what is. And Jesus was the truly innocent one. He's the only one who could say he hadn't sinned. On the cross, when people were heaping mockery and scorn on him, saying, oh, if you can save yourself, if you can save the world, come and save yourself, he said, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. And that's because Jesus has taken on Israel's role to be the place where the sin of the world is worked out. Because the judgment that was due to the world fell on him. And it's because of his faithfulness that God declared him to be the true son of God, raising him to new life on the third day. That was Israel's job. They were called to be God's son. Israel was my firstborn. Out of Egypt, I called my son. But it's Jesus who's actually fulfilled that role. And all of us who trust in Jesus' faithfulness, that his sacrifice on the cross is enough. We are welcomed into God's family as the kind of family God always wanted to create, a worldwide family, the family promised to Abraham. I think the trouble is Amos couldn't see all of that, not, not from 750 BC. He had a small ray of light that he could see. 
Well, what really loomed large for him was the ugliness and the brutality and the depravity of the sin around him and the reality of God's judgment coming against it. And when we read a passage like this, we can't water it down. We can't pretend it means something other than it does. Because when we get to a passage like that, that's exactly what we should see. We should see it because all of us, like Israel, have failed in our vocation to truly image God. We might not have been as bad as Israel. Uh, We might be very nice people. But regardless, we've all gone our own way. We've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. I'm sure, myself included, none of us would be particularly happy if God decided to one day publicly parade all of our sins for the world to see. But all of us were in that pit. All of us were under God's judgment. And we're supposed to feel the weight of that sin. We're supposed to see it for just how evil and destructive it is. We're supposed to feel the same kind of shock that Israel would have felt, you know, judgment after judgment after judgment on someone else, and then suddenly it's turned in. I think one of the the things we should do with a passage like this is hold it up as if it's a mirror and say, this is kind of the same as me. I'm really the same as this passage here. I might not have been as bad, but I am a sinner just like these people here. But we can't stop there because we get depressed. And it wouldn't be true and it wouldn't be, wouldn't be balanced because we've got to read it through the lens of Jesus as well. We've got to look at it through the lens of Jesus because, hallelujah, it is not us standing in the dock anymore. We are not the ones ready to get the sentence from the judge here. It is Jesus who's the one standing in the dock taking on our sentence. In our place, he stood condemned taking our sentence. And I think it's important. We've got to have both. You've got to feel the weight of that sin. You've got to realize the reality and the gravity of it in order to appreciate the depth of God's grace because otherwise what you have is what Bonhoeffer called cheap grace. God's grace was incredibly costly. It cost him his son. We can't have cheap grace. I think, it's, like, I think it's also really important to keep Jesus at the center of a passage like this. I mean, Amos is a strange book if you don't. And it gets even more strange in, in some of the ways we interpret it. A lot of times what Christians do is they'll take Amos from, from 750 BC and draw a straight line to the 21st century and, and completely skip over Jesus. And you find this kind of interpretation with groups of Christians who, who look at the world and say, oh, it's getting worse every day. Um, you know, like people are getting more and more immoral. The family unit's breaking down. Uh, we're losing ground on character. We've got to take this nation back for Jesus. I used to love what, what Philip Yancey said. He said, I don't think even Jesus took a town for Jesus. Um, you know, sometimes we're, we're really quick, and these kind of groups of Christians, they're very quick to t- go from there to say, Oh, well, you know what? Because of all this bad behavior and immorality and sin, God's judgment is going to come on this nation. And, and didn't we see something like that in the aftermath of Kaikoura that some people said, oh, it was caused by the weight of human sin. Hey, isn't that just a terrible thing to say to people? An unbiblical, terrible, callous, hard-hearted thing to say? Imagine people trying to rebuild their lives after the aftermath of some earthquake, suddenly being told God is this capricious monster in the sky is going to stab you like an ant for the sin of some person in another town. It's not God. It's not the God of the Bible. 
The temptation with a view like that is it's very easy to set yourself up as, as I'm the holy one and you guys out there, you're the evil ones. But it's not true, is it? Because evil runs right through every human heart, us included. And it's quite an ungracious attitude to have because it's by grace we've been saved in spite of just how evil and sinful we were. Not because we were so much better than people at keeping the law or or highly moral, or much better than anyone else. It's because of God's grace alone that we're saved. No other reason. That's it. I think a passage like this as well um, reminds us of, of, of that we are not just saved from the Father's wrath against sin, but we're also saved to something. And we're saved to live as God's agents of His kingdom, people who will announce in word and deed that Jesus is Lord. In Amos, the the driving force behind the idolatry, behind the idol worship, was the love of money. Think about that. The the innocent are sold for silver. The poor are trampled on. It's the needy who are oppressed. It's It's the poor who are kept in debt and economic slavery. Is it any wonder that Jesus said, the love of money is the root of all evil? Is it any wonder then that one of the greatest signs of the common life of the early church was that they shared their possessions and that there was no one among them in need? One One of the greatest and most practical and effective ways for us to live out the gospel, to live out of the grace we've received, is with the way we use our money. Now, hear me here, I'm not saying... We should become hippies and go and live in some commune in the bush, as as tempting as that might be. But I'm just saying we need to keep a check on the hold that money can have on our lives. There was a guy called um, Kobe Person. He ran a social experiment and and videoed it and put it on YouTube. I think it's called The Money Suit, if you want to look it up. Um, What he did was he he put on a really nice suit, uh, taped a whole lot of dollars to himself, and held up a sign and said, take what you need, and got into the streets of New York City. And um, you know the people that took the most amount of money from him? They were people wearing fancy suits, Prada bags, Givenchy, Louis Vuitton suitcases. And um, he would ask them, as soon as they took money from him, he said, do you really need this? And some of them would go, no, but it's free. So who wouldn't? At least they were honest. Uh, one woman said, um, yeah, of course I need this. I've got a nail appointment tomorrow. And she was holding a Prada bag at the same time. I think she misunderstood the word need. Um, person who took the least. It's a homeless guy. He took two bucks. And he said, oh, just go and give the rest to some other people. I've got enough for today. And it was, it was such a shock to, to COVID. He, like, he, just, he, he went out of character for the first bit um, and just pulled some extra money out of his pocket and said, no, take this just for the rest of the week. Make sure you're looked after as well. And I know when you, when you watch a video like that, they've got an agenda. They're pushing some narrative, and there's probably a bunch of things that they ended up on the cutting room floor that they didn't show you. Uh, but if you take it at face value, doesn't it just say that like, if, if you've got a problem with money, if money's taken a hold of your heart, it doesn't matter how much you have, it's never enough. I don't know any better way than to deal with the hold money can have on your heart or to stop it being idle than by starting to give some away. If you're not in a regular habit of of giving money away, can I encourage you to do that? 
just to start a habit, even if it's a small amount, whatever you can afford, whatever you can do, just to start a small habit of giving some away. If Shore is your home, if this is your church, I want to encourage you to start giving financially to the church. If this is your home, if this is the, the place that you call your community. I'm going to say right now, Reuben hasn't asked me to say that, and he's not, he doesn't know I was going to say that. Um, I'm not going to get a commission from every dollar you, you give. <laughs> um, and I'm not talking about being unwise with our money. I'm not talking about giving beyond what we can do, um, what we can afford, and getting ourselves into debt to do that. Um, and look, I, I come from a tradition of the church where before every sermon, there's a mini-sermon on money, and it's always about giving more and more and more. And, and, it's, and it always seems to be so much more so that the, you know, the pastor can drive a nicer car or we can get a bigger building and all that. And it almost seems to buy into that kind of consumer mindset of getting more and more as opposed to being really driven by the gospel there. And often, you know, when we come and talk about money in the church, I feel like it's, it's death by a thousand qualifications on that. But what I am talking about here is, is cultivating an attitude and a heart of generosity. So that that tight-fisted grip we have on our stuff, on our time, on our money, on our lives, becomes just a little bit more open-handed. So we become a little bit more attuned to what God is actually doing in the world, what He might be doing amongst those in our community. So that we ourselves become a little bit less obsessed with money, with stuff. Isn't that just the polar opposite of what we read in Amos? We see in Israel, they're so consumed with money that they would do anything to get it. That people became a means to an end. Poor people were objects to be bought and sold just so they could make more money. As I close, I just want to tell you a story about um, Larry Taunton and uh, the late atheist Christopher Hitchens. Some of you might know the story. Uh, Larry Taunton is the director of an apologetics ministry over in the States. And um, him and Christopher Hitchens regularly debated publicly. And they would set up these debates around the country and travel between them. And one thing they did was to take a road trip before Christopher Hitchens, uh, his death. And he'd been diagnosed with cancer at the stage. And they took a road trip to study the book of John, which in itself, I guess, is a miracle. And um, and, and on this road trip, um, Taunton said to Hitchens, he said, one of the things Christians are known for is their generosity. In fact, they regularly outgive most other groups in the States. Uh, and statistically so, you could, you could see it from the statistics. And this really shocked him, because for the first time, and probably only time on that trip, as they stopped to the next stop, he offered to pay for lunch. Never done it before and probably didn't do it again. But you could see for all the debates, all the arguments... Um, as important as they were, it was a simple act of generosity that disarmed him. I'm not saying generosity is some sort of magic virtue that's going to convert the world. Uh, but it does help put arms and legs on the gospel. It does give the gospel flesh. And it's the kind of thing that when Christians are known for this, it really cuts against the grain. Because the world we live on is relentlessly pursuing more and more money. Bigger house next phone, the next car, the next promotion, the next job, the next overseas holiday, the next big thing for me in my life. Generosity, man, it can just cut right against the grain. As we're reminded again through this passage in Amos of the depth of our own sin, that we are just like Israel. As we rejoice in the grace and mercy of God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who in our place stood condemned,
May we be a generous people. God has been infinitely generous with us. May we be a generous congregation. May we, through the power of the Holy Spirit, be people who live out of God's extravagant and generous grace. Shall we pray? Father God, we want to lift you up this morning and and thank you for your amazing and generous grace. Every one of us, we're just like Israel there in that pit and, and under your judgment. And it is only through the sacrifice of your son on the cross that we are set free. We are set free to serve in the newness of the spirit and not in the oldness of the letter. We thank you, Lord, that where there was once death, there is now life. Would you breathe that life into us afresh, Lord, through your Holy Spirit and make us new again? Lord, would you help us to live out of that extravagant and generous grace that you have given us? And Father God, I just pray for anyone today who might be struggling uh, with anything, Lord, that you would meet every one of us where we're at. And you know our hearts, Lord. You know where we're at. Would you bless us all this week, Lord, and keep us safe and open our hearts and minds to the wonder and majesty of your grace. It is in your name we pray. This has been a teaching message from Shaw Community Church. For more of our teaching resources or to donate to our teaching resource ministry or for more information on Shaw Community Church, visit www.shaw.org.nz. Alternatively, you can email office at shaw.org.nz or phone 09 415 0455. Thank you for listening.